Good morning. Quick reminder to switch off your cell phones, please. At today's 11th hour lecture, we're excited to welcome Aaron Lorsong, who will discuss the idea of failure as a writer and what it means to our creative psychology to accept or reject that term. She'll complicate issues of process and so-called production, such as timing, speed, output, and what it means to say that you've finished something. Erin Lorsong is the author of Music for Landing Planes By, her book, and Sweetbriar. Her poems and prose have appeared in Beloit Poetry Journal, Colorado Review, Women's Studies Quarterly, Two Serious Ladies, and The Collagist, among other publications. This week, she's teaching a course in the long poem for the festival, and please join me in welcoming Erin Lorsong. Yeah. Go here? Yeah, or, or um, maybe on the side. All seems to be. And then we might watch out for the scarf. Okay. Or I can put I it can on the scarf. No, I'll just do this. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll get that. Good. Now I truly do feel like Oprah. <laughs> or a preacher. Good morning. How are you? Good. Okay. Um, I'm really glad to be here this morning to talk to you about failure. There are so many of you who have failed like me. Um, so I'm here to talk about productivity and failure as a writer. I'll say up front that of course these things are not gospel despite the microphone, um, that your experience may well be different from mine. That's okay. Um, maybe some of the things I am going to say will be useful and maybe they won't. Either way, enjoy the air conditioning. So productivity and failure. I'm not sure whether these ideas are familiar to you, but the former, no, 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 the latter in particular has been close company for me pretty much ever since I started writing in community. So when I was 16 and writing 400 line rhyming epic poems in my bedroom, I never thought about failure. Um, but when I went to university and was in workshops, and when I went to grad school and was in workshops, and since then as I've been writing as part of the larger literary community, the idea of failure has been a little ghost just over there most of the time. Taking workshops, reading, and being read by my peers, my, writing of underst my understanding of writing changed. I became aware of differences between how I and other people looked at writing, which I had kind of imagined to be this one thing, which for me included things like sewing, and watching movies, and lying on my bed, and not doing a lot of the part where I was sitting in front of a computer or at a notebook with a pen. I became aware of how my ways of making writing 
didn't always line up with others, and I experienced the first feelings of competitiveness that I had had since I left the soccer pitch at 18. I'm also a little bit shaky because I had some food poisoning, and I'm nervous to speak to so many people who are sitting so far away. I remember very clearly when I encountered the idea of productivity for the first time. It wasn't an idea that I grew up with. My parents probably never have used the word productive in their lives. God bless them. Um, I was a sophomore in college. All of my friends were from hardworking western Minnesota farm families, um, much more concerned with a daily kind of productive than I had been. My father was a teacher and my mother stayed at home. Um, I was also a much more sophomoric sophomore uh, than my friends were. They did homework. I walked around daydreaming, looking at buildings and pictures and wondering about the world, but not really doing much. Um, My friends had lists and goals and guidelines and rankings I had a propensity for walking around late at night reciting poems with my friends, my other friends, my also non-productive friends. The driven, ambitious young women I hung out with regularly mourned the deficiencies they detected in their productivity. I was not aware that one could have such a thing. I should also maybe mention that these friends were business majors, and I was an... (laughs) And I was an English major, and they were going to produce things, and I definitely was not. Nevertheless, my friend's preoccupation with getting things done, producing, checking the boxes, crossing things off lists, rubbed off on me. And ever since then, I've been hard-pressed not to think of my whole life in terms of finished objects, good, and everything else, bad. Is anybody familiar with this, or am I alone? (laughs) (laughs) But hold on. First of all, what a narrow space I've just made for myself. Second of all, in writing, it's my belief, it's a belief I've come to over a long period of time. I'm quite distant from my sophomore year in college, even though I might not look like it, um, that things are not this simple. I'd like to look really closely at the word productive. What does it mean? The first associations I have with the word productive are a cough or a bowel. Hmm? That's not the kind of thing I want to make. I'd like to tease the word out a little and differentiate productivity, which seems to me to be something that we associate with feeling good in an honest and full way about our writing from the production of tangible objects, written objects, texts, as related to our work as writers. I think that the idea of the finished object being the thing that we aim for and the thing that validates our work as writers is kind of heightened by the way that we 
experience publishing not only in books right now, but online where things appear and appear and appear and appear and you see finished thing after finished thing after finished thing and you never see the six months it took to get there or the research that it took to make the thing. You just see that it's there. You could have done that. Why isn't your essay finished? Where's your poem? Make it, make it, make it, make it. Or actually, to say it better, have made it, have made it, have made it. <laughs> I'll tell you now, although you might have already guessed, that I hate the idea of being productive, and I hate what it does to me as a writer. I hate when I get wrapped up in the feeling that the value of my work only exists insofar as I have made a completed object and published it. If we can disassociate the idea of doing things, writing, productivity, or kind of moving toward writing rather than writing as a finished thing from the production of a finished or complete object, then maybe we can begin to see that writing as a process is something we're, in, we're engaging in in lots of ways, not only by sitting at a desk, and something that has multiple and polymorphous outcomes, not only published or publishable writing. I remember when I was in grad school for the second time, because some people just have to do it over and over until it sticks, um, that I was really having a hard time. And my advisor told me about Jean-Francois Lyotard, who's a French philosopher. And what she told me that made me feel like I could do it too was that he disavowed his books after he wrote them. Instead of going back and revisiting ideas that he thought were wrong, he just said, nope, I'm done with that. I'm not even looking at that anymore. I'm going to do this other thing. So that the, the books did not get redrafted and redrafted and redrafted, working over and over the same ideas. He said, I did that. It's over. I did that. It's over. I did that. It's over. Kind of moving in this process of the thing exists. I'm not going to trouble it. The thing exists, I'm not going to trouble it. I'm just going to allow it to have been made. The writing as kind of this process that was going on instead of something that you had to kind of work on the object until it was exactly perfect. Being engaged and active and thoughtful and attentive and empathetic and questioning and alert, moving through the world deeply in touch with it in as many ways as possible, is what I'd call productive. That's our work, really. It's the invisible food source that nourishes us when we sit down to do the visible work of writing. The visible work of writing is, of course, the thing that looks like this. But you're fooling yourself if you think that alone is writing. As much as, if not proportionally more than, the part where we sit at the desk, this other kind of work is the work of writing. Yes, it is unavoidably important to get the words on paper eventually, and sometimes we have to do that when we don't feel like it. That's where discipline and honesty and discernment come in. But the words on the paper are not the only thing, and they don't get there by themselves or in a vacuum. Thinking about writing this way, I think of a bulb plant. You guys know bulb plants, yes? It looks like this. In part. <laughs> all winter, all fall and summer, it's hidden in the ground. 
You didn't know it was there, and then the green started coming up. Only its leaves show over the summer until they die back or are cut off, and then it is truly hidden again. But it is not dead, it is not pointless, and it is integral to what happens one time a year in the spring. It is the energy source. No one blames a bulb flower for only flowering once. We know it needs the time underground to prepare for that. You can, only, you can beat yourself up over not being productive if the only measure you have for productivity is the flower. But consider how many months of invisible work contribute to that. Invisible work is part of our work as writers, but it can be the easiest work to neglect or denigrate because its relationship to the parts of writing that are publicly valued in our culture, the parts that can garner praise, support, payment, the finished, publishable parts, is complex and often hidden, just like the bulb. Balance is part of this. You have to know when to stick to your routines, when to push yourselves into the writing that is hands on keyboard or pen on paper. But I think there's value in knowing that we'd have nothing to write about if we sat at a desk 12 hours a day. Writing, the product of our work, the noun, comes from making connections between ideas, objects, feelings, thoughts, encounters, and storing them up. and not losing our place on the page when we walk away. <laughs> that is, making connections between the parts of the world we move through and with which we engage in the process called writing, or of attending to our surroundings, both immediate and much wider as writers. I'd encourage you, if you can, to try to conceive of periods of low productivity or of not writing, where not writing simply means not putting text onto a matrix, as times where the work you are doing is invisible rather than non-existent. To, to try to keep in mind how winter is followed eventually, even after the very long winter that you folks in the Midwest had this year, by spring. How greenery reestablishes itself, and summer, when it is finally here, is lush with living things faster than you can imagine. Only a few months ago, it might have seemed extinct. It wasn't. It was only dormant. It needed the dormancy to do what it is doing now. I'm not speaking out of nowhere either. Until about five weeks ago, I thought I would never write a poem again. I was wrong. The idea of being productive, the pressure we put on ourselves to be productive, is, to my mind, not very useful. It privileges almost exclusively the work we can see, and it doesn't make a lot of space or time for the work we can't. It pressures us to let go of things like play and experiment for fear that they will cause us to fail. That is, that they will not lead directly to production of a finished or recognizable object. All that we do 
is part of our writing lives. When we wash the dishes, take a shower, walk the dog, prepare a meal, drive to work, we do this as writers. Or we can do it as writers. We can do these things with attentiveness, and when we do, the need to divide one part of our lives from the other part of our lives decreases. As a result, we're writing all the time, and we can see how all we, do, all we can do supports or is part of our writing rather than taking away from it. It helps me resent the things I have to do less because I can see that they are actually the kind of bulb plant time. Seeing my daily life this way has helped me be less uptight and precious about writing or the things I'm making. It's given me, given me more willingness to experiment it's made me feel less resentful of my own slowness and of the ways in which my daily life intrudes into writing. The result has actually been written objects that interest me more because they are more and more variously connected to the world. One concrete strategy I've developed is the continual use of a notebook. I have no social graces. I write all the time in public. I always have mine with me, and I write in it everywhere, on buses, at dinner, in church. I'm not writing things. I'm not writing complete objects. I'm just noticing what's around me and writing that down, along with anything, memories, corollary thoughts, that arrives. This has two effects on my more product-oriented writing at a desk. First, it keeps me very limber keeps my brain lively and helps, me, helps prepare me to make connections in the piece that I'm working on. Second, it gives me a huge accumulated corpus of material, observation and detail to draw from when I feel empty but also feel the need to write rather than to refill via reading, walking, dancing, showering, doing chores, whatever. Using the notebook helps me go easy on myself during my winter periods. It helps me see that even when I'm not being productive, my attention to the world has heft and it has matter. Keeping a notebook reminds me every day of the variety of my writing practice and the nature of my writing practice as a process. You can see that it goes on. When I come up against the brick wall of my desire to be productive, and I do feel it, I am generally in a place where I've forgotten that writing is about making things never before seen, and that, and that as such, the making of those things might be strange, might not feel like writing. I tend to resist change in my writing. It's one of my bad habits, and it's tied to my fear of failure. Let me say from the first that although I don't always succeed in being kind to myself, I don't believe there is really a failure in writing. Insofar as writing can be seen as an ongoing process, that is, even things that don't work, even the books we're going to later renounce, even the things that displease me in themselves are part of me getting to wherever it is that I'm going. I want things to stay the same to be recognizable. I know that this is linked to difficulty. What I already know, what I've done before, that's easy. I like easy. At the least, it's easier than having to learn or try something unproven, something I might fail at. 
My habit is to resist what I haven't tried, to resist play, resist experiment, in favor of things that have worked for me before, or in favor of some non-existent and therefore unachievable ideal way I should write. I'm afraid of wasting my time. This has really increased since I realized about a year ago that I'm going to die someday. <laughs> yeah, who wants to make crappy work if you're going to die, right? I'm stubborn, particularly when I feel blocked. And for me, blocked is often integrally tied to a need to be productive in visible, legible, normal ways. I'm great at finding ways to avoid what I deeply fear, obliteration, meaninglessness, failure. And a primary avoidance tactic my brain supplies is the suggestion that play, which is not guaranteed, which resides in process, which is indeterminate, which is opposed to established ways of, of succeeding, is useless. Or that the only valuable thing is that which leads directly to a product with a capital P. Guess what the result of listening to this fear is? Mm -hmm. I end up doing nothing. I don't know about you, but when I listen to what I fear, I don't do anything. I let the fear of doing something wrong distract me. I let my persistence drop. I walk away from the page. I binge watch bad TV. Oh, did I just say that in public? Yeah. <laughs> I get fed up with myself, and my brain assures me that this is just proof of how blocked I am, how incapable I am, and how nothing I make is any good. What a bad writer you are, my brain says to me. Everyone else is out there writing their fifth novel. Look how many prizes those poets are winning, and you can't even bear to open a new Word document. Hmm. Three things, brain. First of all, that's wrong, and I'm no good are anxiety responses. It's not my place to make right or wrong work. Those are long-term judgments. They will most likely take place after I die. My responsibility is only to keep on, to continue writing and observing and taking notes. The more and the more unfamiliar pathways I take to that, the better. Second, there is no pure wrong or pure right. Especially in the low-stakes world of writing, this is not brain surgery. I can do things over. And penicillin was wrong. The microwave was an accident. Cornflakes, that miraculous substance, were boiled over mush that happened to crisp up on a stove's hot surface. Truly. The way I'm used to writing or coming to writing is only that, what I'm used to, value-free. There's no absolute or intrinsic good in it, no moral position. There's no reason not to change. Third, work takes time. That's just a fact. The things we do happen across time. They don't happen instantaneously, despite what Pinterest would tell us about craft, proje craft projects. It's useless to compare a work process to a work product which contains only obscurely the process of its own making. Paying attention to what others have gotten done does a disservice to my process of getting things done itself. Let the comparisons go if you can, brain. 
Sure, it's hard to see the map from above when you're only beginning to chart the territory on foot. But one day, you'll be there. Just because someone else has a map in hand now doesn't mean you won't. And it doesn't mean you have to make yours in the same way. In the face of my fear of failure, I need, counter to my intuition, a writing practice that is broader, not narrower, that offers me more, not fewer, ways of making and understanding writing. Incorporating the wrong ways of writing, wrong ways of writing, whether that's experimentation, play, unseriousness, hyper-seriousness, whatever, into my practice means confronting my own fear of failure and means understanding how that fear is about a fear of being unproductive, of making things that are unrecognizable, illegible, where recognizable and legible indicate goodness and finishedness and realness. I want to stake a claim to what is unproductive in my writing, to what makes me tremble, to what I avoid, to the ways I fail, because looking back, I see that those places, the places I fear, have often been the indication of the richest loads of writing that surprise me and give me deep joy. So, how to move in this direction, presuming it interests you? I mean, you will move there in your own way, but I will give you a couple that I have. I'd like to offer you two metaphors that have helped me redefine my own relationship to ideas of productivity and failure in writing. One is very short and one is quite long. When I feel the most pressure or desire to produce, when I get frustrated that I am slower or that the work takes its own time, for instance, that words have to be written letter by letter, what is that? Why can they not just appear whole and perfect? I, but even then you have to wait for the text to appear on the page word by word. I would prefer that I could beam it there and it would arrive whole and fully formed. The idea of the telescope is useful to me. I will draw it. Imagine my frantic desire to write everything now, to finish even as I begin, to have the writing done even before I do the writing, as a collapsed telescope on the right. Also, concentric tuna fish cans, whichever works for you. Everything in the collapsed telescope is co-present, overwhelming, immediate. There is no sense of distance. I lose perspective, literally. I can't see depth. I forget that writing happens across time and that time itself provides space for much, if not all, of what I want to do. When I expand the telescope, figure A, that's right, mm -hmm, I am relieved to find that not everything has to happen now. I'm freed by this to do things that don't look like writing because I have so much time and space. I can do things that don't have guaranteed outcomes, and I can play. 
I'm also a lot happier. The second metaphor is anecdotal. It's a story about the relationship I see between making prints and making texts. It's about multiples, and in particular about how thinking of our own texts as multiple can help us feel less precious about them, help us be less focused on their perfection as products and more aware of their value to us as parts of our process. The multiple is an idea I first encountered in a printmaking context, not a, visual, not a writing context. I was taking print courses as part of my writing MFA, and the printmakers were always talking about the multiple. What they meant was that in printmaking, you have a matrix. How many people are generally familiar with printmaking? Wow, fairly good proportion for the rest of you. In printmaking, you have a matrix. Let's say... No, T goes the other way. That's the matrix. A piece of wood or metal or something else that contains the image and from which prints are made. And you're never really limited to one of anything because you can always put another sheet of paper on it and print more. You see what I mean? Whereas painters are bound by the constraints of their medium to make unique objects, even a painted copy of a painting is essentially different to the original, and mechanical reproductions of paintings are essentially prints. Printmakers are never so constrained. They can make as many copies as they want, as long as the, mat as the matrix physically doesn't break down. Because the printmakers I was hanging out with were fascinated by and supported by the idea of the multiple, they were generally much looser, much more relaxed than the writers in my program. They were a lot more fun to be with, too. Um, I would say also that that unrelaxed writer definitely included me. As writers, we had this feeling that there was just one thing, that whatever we were making was fragile, delicate, could easily be ruined by a misstep, and then we would have spent all that time, all that work, making the thing that was now a failure. This was dangerous, and it was dangerous to go off somehow with risk and make a misstep. The unknown or unsure direction was a threat to our work. The printmakers, on the other hand, could do this because they were secure in the multiplicity of their medium. They knew that if a print didn't work out, they could reprint. They could do it over. They could rework the matrix that they had originally printed from. They could use a print to make a new matrix. Their work was able to take more risks because of this. Not only that, but they were able to make much more stuff. They were physically much more productive because they were aware that each new print was at the same time its own thing and part of a larger whole. They also introduced me to the idea of preciousness, which was for them a negative quality, a quality of brittleness, tightness, smallness, narrowness, with none of those qualities as a kind of intentional statement. Preciousness for them was the manifestation of fear, fear of taking risks, and fear that blocked out the natural capacity for the, of the multiple medium for more, for further. 
Preciousness meant you hadn't realized yet that you were working in multiple, and that, therefore, it was very difficult to do anything really wrong or to ruin anything. If they could do it in prints, I thought, there was no reason I couldn't do it in writing. After all, especially with computers, it's very easy to make a multiple. Just copy and paste and save, and there you go. And, the idea, and that idea gave me a great gift. It gave me the sense that my writing could exist in many states, that taking risks like erasing, randomizing, adding things that felt wrong, doing all kinds of experimental moves was possible, and also that it really didn't endanger what I had made. It helped me realize that my writing in the general and as its constituent physical parts can exist, can go on existing, even if I change it, even if I destroy it. That revision or radical change doesn't affect the fact that I made this one way first. The original and the mutations and the varieties could be available to me. And that gave me so many more options for what my writing could be like. It freed me up to make things that felt like they'd fail or like I might, like, might not like their results. The multiple is a process-oriented co concept. It rewards work that hovers and work that's willing to stay in one place for a while, figuring things out, thinking hard about what it sees and what it is. It's not product-oriented, except insofar as it will lead to a thing eventually. But like many process-oriented things, I've found that exploring the multiple offers me ways of strengthening my writing because of what it teaches me about possibility and about openness, about how much else my writing could be. And that, for me, has always been worthwhile, even when it doesn't immediately generate a product, finished or finishable writing because it makes the writing that I do make much more thoughtful, much more intense, much more decisively, not accidentally or contingently itself. So what does this have to do, say, with your whole life, with writing as part of your life, with productivity as a writer? What does knitting, walking, reading, seeing movies, sewing, washing dishes, cooking, taking a shower, walking the dog, any of this have to do with writing and with the idea of the multiple? In my experience, taking, part of taking care of myself as a writer is paying attention to the fact that I cannot always be writing. Some writers can. You may be among them. But that's not how my own process works. I know I need to be doing other things. I feel that demand bodily as well as mentally and emotionally. How many of you have sat in a chair for several hours trying to write and then just felt jumpy? Don't you have to get up and move around and do other things? Don't you want to do that now, 40 minutes into a lecture? <laughs> You're totally welcome to, by the way. In fact, on days when I try to override the limit and stay sitting at my desk, more often than not, I can't concentrate, can't get anything done, and get really frustrated with myself. I think it's important to remember, it's certainly important for me to remember, that we are more than just writers, or that our writing is more than just the part where we sit at the desk. We have several sides, all of which have their own needs, and all of which ultimately feed the writing that we do. To care for ourselves as writers, it's important to be aware of what else makes up our practice besides writing, and to actively attend to that. This is part of seeing writing as a process, and not only a unimodal, goal-oriented action. 
That's to say, not only that we as humans are multiple, I'm a daughter, a partner, a writer, a teacher, a maker, I'm also a house cleaner, you know, when I have to be, but that our, pro our practices themselves are multiple, comprising heterogeneous things. I need to write, but sitting at a desk 12 hours a day would not produce writing for me. My writing practice is like an ecosystem, lots of different elements, all of which interact in delicate, sometimes hard to see ways. It's our job to become sensitive to these things so we can help them support each other and our writing. So I know, although I'm not always good at acting on this knowledge, that I write much better if I begin right away in the morning without talking to anyone. I know that if I go out of the house, I'll work better. I know that anywhere I have access to the internet, I won't work well at all. <laughs> I know that limited doses of Twitter, for example, can provide me with stimulus to keep writing when I start to get tired, but that if I look at it via a browser versus via my phone, I will start to check my email and then the day is gone. I know that reading will help kickstart me when I'm feeling low. I know that talking through ideas gets me excited regardless of who I'm talking to. Sorry, stranger on the bus. I know that if I take a walk, the ideas that I want to work out but can't sitting at the desk will start to come. And not only that, I know that a clean, wide space helps me work. So I've configured my desk that way, and I try to keep it clean at night. I know that light helps me. So I have a light, and whenever I can, I go outside or open the windows. I know that I need to drink water and that tea can be a nice reward. I know that I like to have the books I'm learning from, reading, or using at the moment near me when I write if I can. I know that TV and crochet can help my brain slow down when I'm going way too fast and everything is collapsed, like the telescope. I know that dancing has helped me learn to concentrate and that moving my body in general helps me do the writing I want to do but can't do when I'm sitting still. All these things contribute to my practice, which is in no way monolithic or singular. It's composed of so many parts and needs and attentions and experiences. I found that when I can be sensitive to them and aware of them, I end up writing better, and I kick myself less for the parts of writing that don't look like sitting at a desk and writing. The parts that look like walking, wondering, reading, thinking, drinking tea, talking, and looking. Thanks for being here.